0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in
1: your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
0: Uh, very good morning to you this Thursday. You're watching Box with the mighty Karen Cho and myself, Steve Cedric, And these are your headlines. The race is on to secure a last-minute Brexit deal with talks set to continue ahead of today's crucial EU summit as UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson attempts to win domestic support for his plans. US retail sales dip for the first time in seven months, prompting fears of a broader slowdown in the economy, whilst the US Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin says negotiators are working on the text for a Phase 1 trade deal with China.
2: Netflix breezes a sigh of relief as the streaming giant inches past third quarter subscriber estimates, sending shares higher in after hours. The head of Facebook's Libra says he's confident the project will gain enough backing once regulatory concerns are ironed out, telling a CNBC panel the emergence of cryptocurrencies is set to be a game changer.
3: Status quo is not an option. And Uh, Whether it's Libra or whether it's something else, the world is going to change in a really profound way.
0: A very warm welcome to you. Good morning, Karen. Morning. So, look, here's the idea: the, the basic idea of the market at the moment regarding telecoms equipment. If you are a competitor of Huawei and you sell product to Western companies and countries, the idea is you're going to do very well because Huawei, of course, are suffering uh, and finding very uh, many buffers on a regulatory, on a political, and a geopolitical front as well. So, Ericsson. Shares in Ericsson, you presume, would be flying high. Well, they're doing okay, but look at the last three months down 7%. The 12 month picture, or I should say year to date picture, so 10 and a bit months, is up 7.5%. So they're doing okay, the shares, but nothing stellar. I'm pleased to say, though, you know, if you're an Ericsson shareholder, that is, that actually the company does appear to be benefiting at the moment from various trends going on, and whether Huawei is one of those is a question for Bordier Ekholm uh, from the analyst call. But the third quarter net sales have uh, come in better than a previous year, uh, 57.1 compared with the year earlier, 53.8 billion Swedish krona. Uh, but they're upping their sales target as well to 230 to 240 billion Swedish krona for next year, 2020. Uh, that is up um, from the around about ten percent from the previous uh, two hundred ten to two hundred twenty billion. So. Upping the sales guidance, bigger sales this year. Margin looks pretty solid, 37.7% versus 36.5% and the operating margin target for 2020 excluding restructuring charges remains unchanged at greater than 10% of sales. So I would suggest there are some positive features in these numbers from what we've seen so far. Absolutely.
2: I think you're seeing it in the margins, uh, the increase in the financial targets, the sales coming through from North America, one of the early adopters in the market around 5G and also North. Asia. The caveats though in the numbers mm. that you've had that merger between uh, Sprint and T-Mobile in the States and that may impact to the numbers it said on the outlook that's been flagged up to investors. One of the major markets for 5G and, and two of the major carriers combining. So clearly that may, may have some impact. I think the other thing in the numbers too and you've seen it in uh, some of the overall targets is that you've got the underlying investigations into corrupt practices for this business and it's been flagged up this year you've got two uh, or dual investigations uh, into corruption charges and that will have an impact of about 1.2 billion dollars on the company's overall results this year so that is a factor I think overhanging. Uh, the overall numbers that should just be a pure play into 5G. The other point I'd make is that when you think about the numbers we had from Huawei yesterday, they had 60, more than 60 5G contracts. Ericsson has been somewhat uh, shy about presenting its numbers. Mm. But you think, oh, well, Huawei secured 60 contracts. That means everybody else is sort of missing out on those contracts, Mm. right? But what I've seen is that sometimes there are dual operators in, in the 5G equipment supplying space. So, for instance, Nokia and Ericsson have inked deals with the same company yeah. around 5G supplying of equipment. So it would be interesting to see what numbers Ericsson My has at this
3: point.
0: The question remains profitability of new wave of technology as well. Now, I'm, I'm fully sold up. I get it. Internet of things is amazing. I've had it drummed into me from various CEOs now. And, and I can see the benefits and the possibilities. But I wanna know where the profitability is for a company like Ericsson as well, because they're talking about IoT business growing almost twice as fast as the estimated growth of 20 to 25% per year. That's amazing. But but we do not expect to reach break-even for the IoT segment next year and instead incur losses of 1.5 to 2 billion Swedish krona. Now, these aren't enormous figures, uh, and it is but it is delayed profitability of a business segment, which we know, like every other technological mm. business segment, eventually will become commoditized. So if you can't make your high margin and profit in the early years of these products, I'm wondering what the product stream profitability looks like over the life of these new devices and new technologies. Uh, they
2: want the operators the telecoms companies, to sign up en masse. Mm. And if you look at some of the reports that they've been presenting, they're trying to make the case that there will be profits there for these telecom companies if they sign up, you know, provide these services, open up new services as well to connect up 5G, and that's the Internet of Things, all those sorts of offerings. If you think about, say, your iPad or a tablet that's connected to services, trying to sell that to the customer rather than just having a tablet that's hooked up to Wi-Fi, you know, that type of but, thinking well, around the thing, connected Karen, devices I, I in probably future.
0: won't pay up for any of this stuff because it'll all just come bundled in and i probably will not even notice the additional technology next i'll just expect it from my nice. My, my provider. And that, that again brings me back to the question where's the profitability for well, them if so, I, as a consumer, are getting this stuff for, for the same price I'm paying for others? So, this is the
2: stretch. They need to move into new services. Right. So, Ericsson produced a report recently where they gazed out, out until 2030 and they're saying there are $700 billion worth of 5G enabled business to business value uh, that can be addressed by service providers. So, trying to sell the case that there is more revenue to be had for I, these I hear the argument about the revenue. Operators. I want to know where
0: the profit is. That's the thing.
2: Well, I think if you get more uh, volume. Volume of business, wider volume uh, and wider range of services, then obviously you can do more than just simply selling a phone contract and a bit of broadband. If you can sell maybe financial services or some other revenue model on content as well. Okay,
0: well, look, you've got to go go to the wall apparently, but as you go over there, I I just want one thought on the retail sales from last night. I thought they were obviously underwhelming figures, disappointing numbers, as we mentioned in our heads as well. So why didn't the market rally? Because normally on a bad bit of data, they might think, oh, oh, we're going to get a rate cut. Uh,
2: Well, the point is whether a rate cut can shield the US economy at this point. If you think about all the commentators we've had around the set, what we've heard is that the US consumer is key because it is the one big prop for the US economy. If you take away all the weakness in the US manufacturing sector, the uh, consumer on Main Street has been resilient still. And that that US retail sales number that we saw in September contracting for the first time in seven months just rattled the cage on risk and you can see investors turning tail yesterday across from the Nasdaq where you saw the, the biggest fall are down about a third of a percent versus only slight losses for the likes of the Dow but uh, what we had in terms of overall sectors, small caps and transport where investors focused their attention these were the outperformers on markets so as a little bit of risk came off the table you could also see investors closely eyeing Brexit, uh, we had a bit of a stop-start day, waiting it out on the wires for more detail to cross, and yet we still didn't have any official news about reaching the the end game around Brexit. And when it comes to trade, there's been a few issues there too as investors wait to see how Phase 1 is going to be rolled out with uh, question marks of whether trade tariffs need to be lifted to allow the the purchases of the Phase 1 deal to be completed. So I think investors just taking stock a little bit in session yesterday. Let's move on to the Asian markets, uh, a quick look at how the trading session is playing out. As investors also digest that US consumption story. And you can see it's cautious for the Japanese stock market, for China, for Australia, down 7 tenths of a percent. One of the, the key markets uh, performing really just the Hong Kong market, to about three quarters of 1% to the upside. And the opening calls, what we saw yesterday, uh, these stock are up 600, reversing down just over a tenth of a percent, so modestly weaker in session. And if you look at the FTSE, down 6 tenths of a percent, and was a weaker day as investors still were looking for more news flow around Brexit talks. And what we've got for the rest of the market this morning, cautious in lockstep with uh, some of that selling that we saw lightening up on risk on Wall Street.
0: It's funny you say investors want more news flow around Brexit. I think they just want it over and done with, but uh, maybe we can uh, agree different differ on that. Uh, I think they want both actually. Oh, because
2: saying. we had everything yesterday, there's a deal coming, there's no deal we away. I know, I know. One, of our, one of our
0: near rivals uh, said there was a draft ready and it took a few more hours than that. Anyway, the EU and the UK have yet to strike a deal over Brexit. I can tell you, as European leaders prepare to meet in Brussels today, talks between the two sides are ongoing whilst the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been attempting to drum up support for the deal amongst British lawmakers. The European Parliament's chief Brexit official Guy Verhofstadt said there has been a change in the UK's position.
4: There has been a fundamental shift uh, more or less a week ago, uh, where before uh, the proposals of, uh, of uh, Mr Johnson were absolutely unacceptable. Um, giving a veto to the DUP um, to give only one example uh, there has been a fundamental uh, fundamental shift uh, that, is, that is clear so um, the question is now can the outstanding issues on customs be been, uh, been solved and uh, and, um, and and then the next step uh, but that is not in this Parliament it's in another Parliament in, in, in Britain is there a majority in the, in the House of Commons for it. Uh,
0: interesting, so there's another parliament in Britain. I would suggest another parliament in one part of Britain as well, which isn't even sitting at the moment, at Stormont, of course. Uh, Stirling won 18 so still continuing to rally. Willem, uh, we heard from Guy Verhofstadt there as well. So customs, consent, and now VAT being an issue? Although the latter, I'm told, is a smoke stream. Back to you.
1: Uh, yeah, there's clearly some outstanding issues, as Guy Verhofstadt was saying there, and that makes life very complicated for these negotiators coming into this European Council in just a few hours' time. To explore some of those issues, I'm joined by Fabian Zulek. He's the Chief Economist and Chief Executive of the European Policy Centre. Thanks so much for joining us. The idea of consent how complex is this to resolve given the history of the United Kingdom, the history of the island of Ireland? And how
4: likely do you think it is that it will continue to be a sticking point? It's extremely difficult. Um, Both communities in Northern Ireland have to agree to the long term solution. But the problem is Brexit means the status quo will change. Um, So uh, there has to be some form of mechanism to involve the communities. Um, But that's highly disputed. So it will continue to be one of the major issues uh, in getting a deal. From your experience, It sounds like there is political will
1: on both sides of these talks to find an agreement at this stage. How important is the economic calculation from the European side at this point to avoid no deal? I
4: mean, the European Union clearly sees uh, that a no deal would be disastrous, um, first and foremost for the UK, but also for the EU, um, particularly for certain countries. So that's a strong driver um, to get a deal done, Um, but that will not mean that the EU will give up its principles, Um, those are more important than the economics. And and let's talk about those principles, because clearly the integrity
1: of the single market is a phrase that we've heard for years during these negotiations. How does that get threatened by an agreement on Northern Ireland that the
4: European Union is not happy with? Can you explain that to viewers? Well, the problem is really in how far is the UK and in how far is Northern Ireland part of the single market Um, and how far um, do these parts um, follow the rules of the single market. Um, If they have access, if they're inside the single market, then there also has to be a mechanism that they adhere to the rules um, so not to give a competitive advantage to any companies outside the single market. So let's talk about that competitive
1: advantage because one of the elements that seems to have shifted from the British position is on the concept of a level playing field when it comes to the kinds of standards that British manufacturers, for instance, will have to adhere to in order to uh have this deal work in the future if you end up with a free trade agreement how
4: does that how does that fit in economically to the future of the uk Um, for the eu level playing field conditions are extremely important Uh, there is a need uh, from the perspective of pretty much all governments in the european union to prevent a situation where uh, the uk would use lower standards to compete uh, in environmental issues in labor issues in taxation Um, So they will insist on having these level playing field conditions in any deal uh, that uh, will open up the possibility of having a trade deal uh, between the European Union and the United Kingdom, which is the most important trade deal the UK has to strike. You've lived in this town for a dozen years at least. You've followed
1: talk after talk after talk when it comes to negotiations involving the European Union. Is it true, do you think, that the time pressure ahead of these kinds of summits we're seeing today has served as a useful tool to bring two sides together?
4: Yeah, time pressure always um, is important uh, to get to an agreement. Uh, Clearly, you need the people also in town. So the summit now um, is uh, the crucial point. Um, And the European Union is rather good at striking these kind of deals in getting the technicalities in place. Um, But I think the key here has been the time pressure on the United Kingdom, Uh, given that no deal looms at the end of the month, the United Kingdom has to find a solution rather quickly. Fabian, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That was Fabian
1: Zulik. He is the chief executive and chief economist at the European Policy Centre based here in Brussels. And with that, I'm going to hand it back to you guys.
2: Willem, thank you very much for all closely watching a pound performance today after a bit of a roller coaster ride yesterday. Meantime, uh, more numbers to watch out for today. We're waiting it up for Nestlé numbers and don't forget this has been somewhat of a bond proxy for investors looking for safety, looking for yield and also looking to be exposed to equities. The performance of this stock and I think you can see it here today in this performance it has been up a fairly mighty. 32%, 32%, and typically when you're looking for stocks that uh, produce a 32% return uh, in, in less than a year, it's a stock that is growing rapidly, right? And what we've got is a, a fairly slow growth company uh, traditionally, so I think that is a real standout for me when you've got uh, such extraordinary performance uh, over the course of the year, and, and I think do a long-term performance. You can see that it was just a steady grind high for the stock price until you really it. got, to, you got to the likes of 2018. Uh, we're still oh, waiting we're still waiting. oh okay. The
0: in which case, across. I've got a comment about it. Sorry, I thought you had them. Um, Nestle trades on. The, I'm making your point for you. Nestle trades on 22 and a half times, yeah? Um, would you think the growth profile. It's just coming out now, but would you think the growth profile of Nestle is better than the growth profile of Google? Of course not. Google trades Apple, a oh, big part, Alphabet Inc., which includes Google, at 22.66 forward price earnings ratio. Nestle trades at 22.56 forward price earnings ratio. I'll leave that to viewers. I don't have to say anything, do I? Is the growth profile of Nestle and Google the same? Strap in terms yourself of valuation, in. it's waft up yourself
2: in for this growth rate. Are you ready for it? Yep. In the nine-month window, organic growth was up 3
0: Fully enough, enough, that's at the better end of the range these <laughs> days. I mean, zero to four is your wide range on consumer products. Two to four is your tighter range. And so anything n- nudging 4%, it's kind of the top end of the market. But should I pay 22 and a half times forward for that, when actually a decade ago, I was paying around about nine, 10 times forward I for get, it?
2: Well, the other point I make is that typically with this type of performance in the stock price, you think investors are lining up because they think there's going to be an upgrade and there's going to be more to come. So we've got the line, confirms its outlook. So there's been no upgrade to earnings, it's just confirmed what investors already know. So it's an extraordinary world, isn't it, when we talk about bond proxies, slow growth, Decent, mm. but you know, slow. Let's face it; it's low single digits, and confirming outlook. It's not producing even more in the numbers. So, in the
0: second quarter, the in July, the figures were three point six percent was the organic growth figured, with continued uh, strong real internal growth of two point six percent and pricing of one percent. So, the fact that they've been confident enough to carry on with pricing increases. I mean, I don't really have much more to say apart from. Do we think that a solid sector with solid returns, which I think there's a bit of buyback in there, I noticed as well. Um, In fact, there is um, volume of monthly share buybacks and amount of potential special dividend payments will depend on market conditions. Well, yeah. okay. Um, look, you've got a stock that's come a very long way. It's a very well run company. It's got solid growth at the top end of the range of the sector. But is it worth 22 and a half times forward when a company like Google is trading? At 22 and a half times forward.
2: Yeah. And here's what we can expect for the four year organic sales growth uh, around three and a half percent, four year underlying trading operating profit margin at or above 17.5 percent the company should any sizeable acquisitions take place during the period the amount of cash to be distributed to shareholders will be adjusted accordingly so just telling you also there's some risk in that payout if it decides to embark upon a big transaction
0: absolutely Uh, coming up on the show libra under fire the co-creator of the cryptocurrency defends the project despite a string of high profile dropouts details after the break
2: co-creator of the Facebook-backed cryptocurrency Libra says there is still solid demand from organizations to join the project. That's despite recent high-profile dropouts from companies like Mastercard and Visa amid ongoing regulatory scrutiny. But Libra head David Marcus told CNBC during a panel at the IMF in Washington that he still backed plans to create a digital coin underpinned by a basket of global currencies.
3: We absolutely need banks, and I believe that banks will ultimately join. I think it's it's harder for very large regulated entities to take an active part in this fight right now, given the climate and the pressure. Uh, I think that once we've done a really good job as uh, uh, the Libra Association to address these concerns and... Uh, I want to remind everyone here that the Libra Association is now officially 48 hours old. Uh, So it was formed two days ago in Geneva. We now have governance and 21 members. Uh, But it will take time for us to address all of the regulatory concerns that were raised. And it's our duty and our responsibility to come with answers to all of these questions uh, collaboratively. And I think once we've done this, then I think you'll see more banks and more traditional financial services players uh, join the effort.
2: Meantime, Netflix shares rallied in extended trade after the streaming group added more subscribers than expected in the third quarter. New content titles and the return of fresh seasons for Stranger Things and 13 Reasons Why helped the group add 6.77 million customers worldwide. Zach Fuller is an analyst at MIDIA Research and he joins us now. Thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, Let me ask you about the subscriber numbers because that's where investors focus their attention. And you saw domestically, it uh, reported 500,000 paid net additions in the States. That was short of expectations, about 800,000 penciled in. and internationally, there was an ad uh, that was uh, better than expected, six point three million. It tells us the pace is slowing, doesn't it? They're still growing, but the pace of those ads is slowing.
5: Mm, of course, so this was a recovery from the very first quarter for Netflix last uh, well last quarter back in Q two, uh, where they registered a decline in their net subs for their US. So to see that positive growth come back into the market on the US side, um, also on the international side definitely would have been much appreciated by Netflix. Um, they highlighted in the last quarter that they believed this would be, uh, would be invigorated by the return of Stranger Things, so very much underlining the hits-driven nature the business.
2: I was fascinated by their comments because some of the critics pointed out well hey you know this challenge around subscriber growth came at a time when you don't have the full-on competition coming from likes of Disney and some of the other major players Mm. they're saying well we've always been competing we've had Amazon YouTube Mm. out there and that they think that when you've got more players it will actually accelerate this move from linear TV to on-demand consumption Mm. what do you make of that because if you look at the airline space it worked for a bit and then suddenly there was too much capacity, and that's mm. been a challenge.
5: Absolutely, so it's the calm before the storm, and they're very much highlighting the bullish case that you know all uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. If we have more of these services, it's going to expedite that transition away from linear TV over towards uh, SVOD services and AVOD services as well, so that would naturally help Netflix. The more bearish case is that this turns out to be far more of a, a zero-sum game and that these services are you know, going to eat into the digital wallet spend which is finite of certain consumers and therefore Netflix would have far more competition uh, in the s Ford space than they've previously been accustomed to. Um,
0: but have they got enough content to compete? I guess the point is when everyone's up and running, when NBC's up and running, when Disney's up and running, when all the other rivals are there. because. Mm. They're going to find it very difficult to raise prices, aren't they, all of these (coughs) streamers? Because if people are prepared to pay, I don't know, 50 bucks a month or 75 bucks a month, then there will be a level where people say, Mm. do you know what? I'm I'm actually not going to have all of these services.
5: Mm. Well, it comes down to at this stage, it's all conjecture when we're talking about the apparent success or potential success. Mm. of these future of these future services i didn't say they would be
0: successful mm. i said there'd be a lot of them
5: sure well absolutely volume comes into it and also you reference pricing yeah they are going to be coming in at a lower price point than netflix and that's naturally going to impact netflix's ability to raise prices in the future but on the content side you know suppliers turned uh, competitors that's going to impact uh, netflix's ability to uh, to compete
2: 5g's coming and we're seeing it in some of the operators and some of the phones. Do you think that's going to be a a game changer for the streaming services?
5: 5G being Mm. a game changer for the streaming services. I mean, the streaming services themselves, they built their uh, business off this limited content offering that was first available when we saw the transition over to the the more uh, telco-centric media landscape. So if they can uh, eat into each other's businesses at this point, I mean, that's going to be a huge amount of competition. I mean, there is a finite space that these companies are coming up against. It's a uh, post-peak attention, we'll call it. It's the idea that there used to be this finite, this finite amount of attention or there was far more space to run back when there was dead time that people could actually uh, engage with these services. That's why the mobile game industry was so successful early in the days of the smartphone economy. We're reaching the saturation point of that. Right. There's going to be far less uh, attention that these companies can meaningfully yeah. go for now.